You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, podcast listeners. Randy Bolander here on the Third Cup of Coffee. Glad to have you with us. I want to say a special hello to Justice. Justice is a little one-year-old girl. And according to her missionary parents, this is the story. Apparently, Justice mimics my syntax when the podcast comes on. She, uh, I don't know what that sounds like. I'm really actually kind of curious. I kind of want to hear it, and I kind of don't want to hear it. But uh, we all know imitation is the most sincere form of flattery, probably with the exception of when it's done by children. When it's done by children, they're just making fun of you. But anyway, hello, Justice. We hope you are doing well. And uh, mommy said you could have ice cream. So go right to the freezer right now. Go ahead, get your ice cream and enjoy. Today, we have uh, another episode from our series, The Letters. Daniel Grenz, one of our leaders at the bridge, steps in and really, really shared a powerful message. There was just a a sense of conviction on this. And uh, we were so grateful. We love Daniel and Carla. And we uh, look forward to hearing more from him, actually. Here we go. Letters, part five, I guess. Part five. Yeah. If you have your Bibles with this morning, good, you should. We're at church. Uh, We're going to be in Revelation chapter two. And I, man, that worship was so good. Thank you, Nick and Caleb. Zion is somewhere around the, the facilities. Um, I mean, I was standing there looking at these clouds, and uh, they're, they're actually very nice clouds. The production is called In My Dreams. Yes. So if anybody's got time this afternoon and you want to know what that's like. Well, Leslie walked in this morning. I said, welcome to my dreams, and he looked like a deer in the headlights. Like, what are you talking about? But as we were worshiping, I'm thinking, you know, even though none of us probably espoused to this view that heaven is sitting on clouds playing harps. I'm like, it's kind of fitting. You know, we want to go to heavenly places this morning. Um, that worship was so good and, and just so tender. Before I jump into the word this morning, I want to share just one quick fun story that I think will encourage your hearts. It was probably two and a half months ago or so. Um, we had Joel Richardson with us. He shared on Afghanistan. We prayed for Afghanistan. I know many of you have continued praying, and uh, we're part of a prayer meeting that meets on Tuesday mornings uh, over at IHOP, and we zoom in to this prayer meeting, uh, one of uh, of the leaders of an underground church movement over in Afghanistan. And so every week, he's bringing us these updates, both prayer requests and specific needs, but also testimonies. So I want to just share one quick testimony that I hope will encourage you and stir us to keep praying for Afghanistan. Um, So a few weeks ago, he's on the call, and he says that the week before that, they've got these teams. They have two types of teams that are going village to village to village across Afghanistan. One of them is a Jesus film team. So they come into the village, they gather the village together, they show the Jesus film, they tear it all down, and they head out of town. And then another team comes right behind them, and that team shares more of the gospel. They build relationships, and, and they do some of the foundational work. And so a few weeks ago, they had this team that went into a village. They got a hold of the village elder. They gather people. They show the Jesus film, and people are really moved. So that team leaves. The follow-up team comes. They're, they're there sharing from Luke and from Acts, and the, the village is really engaged with the word. Um, but the next day, the Taliban shows up, a, a small contingency of Taliban. And they show up in this village. The village elder's brother had, in, had essentially told the Taliban, hey, we've got these people in the village preaching Jesus. So the Taliban shows up, and they go to the village elder. They said, hand us over the Christians. We're going to kill them. The village elder says, they're my guests. You're not going to dishonor me like this. So the Taliban says, fine, we're going to come back tomorrow with more men, with more guns, and we're going to wipe out the village. And so that night, the Christians are there praying, this, this team and uh, just, they're deciding, should we stay? Should we go? They feel like God said, I want you to stay. So they pray. They release it to the Lord. They go to sleep. The rest of the village couldn't sleep that night. And the next morning, they wake up, and they see the Taliban coming to the village. 
And when the Taliban shows up, they come and they bring tea. Instead of coming with weapons, they bring tea. And these Christians are like, what is going on? And so the leader of the Taliban says, the night before, just last night, I have a dream. And in my dream, Jesus shows up. And he says to me, do not harm these ones. They are of my kingdom. Listen to what they say. So the Taliban says, we've come to listen to your message. So they call back the Jesus film team. They hightail it back into the village. They show the Jesus film. The entire time, the Taliban's sitting there weeping. They come up afterwards to respond. And they said, we used to use these weapons to destroy. We're going to now use them to protect you so that you can go village to village preaching the gospel. This is happening right now in Afghanistan. And this is, I wanted to share that just to stir us with faith that we sit here and, and thousands of others around the world for sure, but we sit here in this building in Olathe, Kansas, and we say, God, move in Afghanistan, save the Taliban, send revival. And he says, okay, I'm going to do it. So we thank you for that, Father. All right, we're going to jump in, continuing our series on the letters uh, to Revelation. You know, I, I love that song that, that we were singing this morning about, I want to see your face. And as we were singing that, I just felt so clearly, Lord, say, that's what I'm showing you in these letters. Like, that's what this whole book is about. A lot of times we, we think, well, it kind of starts in chapter four, when heaven is open and he sees the father on the throne and then the son come. But he's like, no, I'm starting from verse one of chapter one. And so in each of these letters, he says, I have something to show you about who I am and of my face. And, and if you're just joining us for the first time with these letters, we've uh, been doing this for th four or five weeks now, I think. Um, but these letters, they're both written to a historical city in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And they're also written for the church throughout history, and especially, I believe, the church that's part of that final generation before Jesus comes back. And, and there's really three or four key things as we look through these letters that each of them contains they give us this glimpse of who Jesus is, and, and especially who he is when he comes back to the earth, who he is in his glorified state as king of the universe. And they also give us a glimpse into what he's after in his bride. And, and just quickly, they do this in three ways. Number one, every letter starts with a revelation of who he is. Drawing from that vision of John in chapter one, he, he chooses two or three characteristics of who he is, of his nature, and he offers that to that church as the grace and the strength to overcome the issue that he highlights. So he gives them this, this revelation of himself. Then he hits this core issue. In most of the churches, it's something that is threatening them to take them off course. There, there's only two churches that he actually doesn't rebuke. And I heard somebody talking on this recently, and they said that the two churches that he doesn't rebuke for something were actually the two churches under the greatest persecution that the persecution actually kept the church in line and it kept them clean and after his ways. So he hits this core issue, different levels of sin, temptation that are gonna increase leading up to the days of his coming. And then he finishes every letter with a reward for overcoming, for those who stay faithful, for those who wake up morning after morning and say yes to his leadership. He says, this is your reward. And man, those things are priceless. I think it's easy to read them and, and even from last week, you know, Randy had this one that the reward was you get a white stone. It's like, I mean, there's probably a lot of white stones out in the landscaping. Like, what's a white stone mean? But I feel like if, you know, if we dig into these things, we'll realize, like, these things are so precious and so glorious that it actually strengthens and fuels us to walk in faithfulness to him. And so, um, so we're going to keep going today with the message to Thyatira as I was thinking about this, you know, most of these letters contain a pretty intense word, a pretty intense word, whether it's Ephesians, you know, I'm going to remove your lampstand. If it's Laodicea, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Like that's intense stuff. And I was just thinking back a few weeks ago, our daughter Miriam came to me and she, uh, she had a little splinter in her finger. And so, you know, when you have a splinter, the first thing you do, you try to push it out with your finger didn't work. The next thing you do, you get the tweezers. That didn't work. And so the next thing you do, which is what happened to me growing up, is you go get the utility knife. And, and very delicately, but with very, very intentionality, a lot of intentionality, you start to cut that thing out. 
And I had to do that. And Miriam, she was fine. She didn't get hurt. I don't even think she bled. You know, but there's this process where if there's something small that's stuck in place, there's going to be a cutting that's needed to, to remove it out of the way. And we see that in, in these letters. Um, but, the, but the idea being that in that we see Jesus's deep love and his longing for wholeness and maturity in his bride and, and to remove any, any fraction, any splinter that would try to come into our soul and stunt or hinder our, our growth. So the church of Thyatira, we're going to be reading today Revelation 2, 18 to 29. Just a little uh, historical context. I've so enjoyed as Randy's brought that to us about each of these cities. Um, so just a little background on Thyatira. I think we have a map that we could put up there. It's, it was actually the smallest city of these seven. And so you can see it. It's about 45 miles southeast of Pergamum on the road between Pergamum and Sardis. And because of that, it became kind of this commercial trading center where people would come to Thyatira, they'd trade, they'd buy, they'd sell different crafts and wares, and then they'd continue on their way down to Sardis. Um, and this doesn't have the current city names, but it's this, this small community is now inside the modern-day city in Turkey called Akasar. And so as this commercial kind of trade route center, Thyatira became a wealthy city. People had money. They had resources. And in that day, in that culture, if a community had money, one of the first things they would do is to build temples to their gods. And so Thyatira had several of these temples where they would worship the gods like Zeus. I think you talked about Zeus last week and how there was the, you know, the, the throne of Satan in Pergamum. And so that message had carried on down to Thyatira. They're, they're worshiping Zeus and Artemis, Apollo, and Athena. And, and because of the construct of this city, there was many, you know, it's, it's this place of trade. There was a lot of different guilds or trade unions, labor unions in this city. Um, they had ones around wool, linen, leather, bronze, pottery, and, and different dyes. Actually, Lydia if you remember in, in Acts, one of Paul's co-laborers, she was from Thyatira, and she was a dyer of the purple. Um, and so this city had all of these different trade guilds. The thing is, if you were a tradesman and you wanted to work in Thyatira, you had to be part of one of these unions. You were not allowed to work outside of the union. But the thing about being part of the union is that every union was tapped in to a certain expression of the spirituality and the religion. And so in order to be part of this trade union, you were required, if you wanted to keep your job, to attend different festivals to different gods at the temple. These festivals were these pagan feasts where they would sacrifice this food to, to Zeus or to Artemis or Athena, and you'd have to take part in this festival that was filled with idolatry and immorality. If you refused, you were essentially saying, I'm, I'm against this trade union. And how many of you know if you're working somewhere and you say, I'm against this place, you're probably not going to last long. And so by taking that stand and not going to the feast, your job was, was most likely finished. But if you went to the feast, you had to partake in the food and sometimes the, the extracurricular activities, the sexual morality of the feasts. Um, but that, had, you know, that food had been sacrificed to demons. And so your job was secure, but then your place in the church was not. And so the early church was teaching, you can't be part of these unions, but in the midst of that, you know, the, the pressure, the trial, the struggle of, of trying to make a living outside of these unions gave place to where some teachers were coming to the church and saying, it's actually okay. You can go to this trade union, you can take part, you can eat the food, what's an idol, it doesn't really matter, it's not going to affect you. And so that's the context to which we find Jesus appearing on the scene. In, uh, in Revelation 2, 18 to 29. And, and this morning, I want to, the, the, kind of the theme of this message, just so you know kind of where I'm going, the title of it is uh, Devotion Stealers or Devotion Killers. And I believe in this letter to Thyatira that he gives us insight into what are some of those things that are threatening to take the ground that we've gained in him and how do we stand against it. So let's read Revelation 2. Verse 18, to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, 
the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this. So let's stop there for a minute. So Jesus begins this letter. He gives them three truths, three descriptions of himself that are gonna be needed for this church to stand firm. It's gonna be needed for them to overcome this idea of toleration that's trying to steal their devotion. So he starts first and he says, I am the son of God. I mean, we could write, people have you know, written volumes and volumes on that, but he says, I am the son of God. I am the first and the last. I'm the creator of all things. I'm the one with all power, all authority. Can we turn this down just a hair? Thanks, Lyle. I have perfect wisdom as the son of God. My judgment is clean. My judgment is good. You can trust what I'm about to tell you because I've seen from the beginning and I've seen the end from the beginning and I know all things. And I am the one who has the power through his blood to cleanse and get you back on track. I'm the son of God and you can trust me. I have the power to restore you and turn things around. And he goes on, he says, I have eyes like a flame of fire. The one with eyes like a flame. And, and Randy hit this point of how John can't even come up with adequate language. He's like, it's like fire. And I think all of us have, have you know, we've sung songs and we've heard messages. There's so much that could be said about his eyes like a flame of fire. But I believe that these eyes speak of both his, his jealous love as a bridegroom, his jealous longing for us, and I believe that they speak of his zeal to judge and remove everything that hinders love. If, if, if you're from a charismatic background in any way, you know, we, we, we're familiar with that promise of John the Baptist. He's gonna baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. And, and so we equate fire oftentimes with this burning desire and passion for Jesus. But scripturally, fire also represented a purifying, cleansing judgment that was necessary out of the mercy of God so that we could be wholehearted before him. In Isaiah 4, it talks about, you know, in that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful, and it talks about Jesus ruling from Zion on the earth in his return, but it says that he will purge the bloodshed. He will cleanse all filth from that city by a spirit of burning. And so he comes to this church. He's like, I have eyes of fire. I am jealous as a bridegroom, I'm jealous for wholehearted love, but I'm also zealous to remove and judge everything that would try to come between you. In Proverbs 6, verse 34, it says, for jealousy arouses a husband's fury and he will show no mercy when he comes to take revenge. Now, that's an intense verse. <laughs> but I believe that there's a, a measure of that where Jesus is saying, this is no joke. Like something is threatening to come between me and my bride and I'm not gonna stand for it because I'm a jealous husband. Now, not quite to that extent, but I remember when we first moved to China, this was before we had a scooter, which was our, our Chinese version of the minivan. Sometime I'll, I'll show you guys pictures of the five of us on a scooter. This was before that, this was before... We had any type of vehicle or our own transportation. And so we would ride the bus a lot, public transit. If you know anything about China, you know that in China, lines, like lining up, forming an orderly line, it's, it's not even on the level of a suggestion. You know, some things culturally we say you have to do this, it's really a suggestion. In, in China, it's almost this invitation to do the opposite. And so when you're standing in line for a bus, you're kind of, it's kind of just, it's not this single file getting on. It's kind of this wave of people that's trying to cram into a space that's about four foot wide. And, and so because of that, we'd get there and, you know, I'm, I'm tall and so I, you know, I kind of stand out a little bit. And, uh, you know, I'd be, I'd be holding firm, holding my ground. I'd be making my way onto the bus, but pretty soon I'm looking back and a dozen little Chinese grandmas had pushed their way between me and my bride. They had started to, to just kind of make their way in because they've been doing this for 70 years. They, they knew the system. And so I'd look back and I, I kind of lightened up as we went along. But those first few weeks, months, you know, I was like, hey, guys, line up. I'm like, pai dui. And so I'm just saying like, hey, line up. We were here. You know, and they just kind of smile and, and keep doing their thing. And, but I learned quickly that I had to pay attention and keep my bride right by my side or else something was going to come in between us. And, and I would say in a much more 
zealous and intentional way, Jesus comes and he's like, something is threatening to come between me and my bride and I'm not going to stand for it. So he talks about his eyes like a flame of fire. And the third description he gives them, he says that his feet, my feet are like burnished bronze. And throughout scripture, bronze is a symbol of judgment. I believe that the burnished, which is this, this word we probably don't use in our modern language. How many of you this past week talked about something being burnished? But it's just this picture of something made to glow, made to reflect, that's, that's come through the fire and that is pure. And so I believe he's saying to them, I have pure judgment. I have judgment that's not swayed by the opinions of man or the fear of man. I have judgment that's not partial. I think of Isaiah 11 when it gives this description of, of the, the sevenfold spirit of God on Jesus. And then it says, he will not judge by what his eyes see or by what his ears hear. But in the fear of the Lord, he will give perfect judgment with all fairness. And so he comes to them and he says, listen, I'm about to say something, but trust me that this is a pure word. That this is a word spoken out of pure love for you guys. With perfect clarity and perfect mercy to walk this out. And, and so we have the son of God eyes like a flame of fire, feet like burnished bronze. And I believe together that these three descriptions are saying to this church that I'm a jealous God to draw you near to myself, to cleanse you and to fill you with my glory and to do this with all mercy so that you can operate in great power and love. And, and the reason I, I spent a little bit of time on these descriptions, I mean, there's so much there that we can meditate and dig into, but I feel like it's so essential that we hear the heart of the one speaking this letter. Because what he's about to say is intense. Like if you haven't read it before, he's about to say, I'm gonna kill some people. Like really? And, and so like we read that and it's like, wait a minute. That's not the Jesus that I know. That's not the, the sweet little baby in the manger, Jesus. Like actually it is. It's the Jesus who's so kind and tender and merciful, but he's also jealous to remove everything that would come between him and us. But we have to see this picture of who he is, that, that he is completely just and completely merciful and com has complete clarity on how to walk all of this out in a way that's best for us. So he says, that's who I am as I'm coming to you with this letter. We've got we've to see that right or else we're going to just see him as kind of this cruel God who's really excited to crush and destroy. He's like, no, that's not who I am at all. I'm a God whose heart is full of mercy. And, and so he gives this description of himself, and then he, he gives an affirmation, you know, just like he did with the other churches where he said, I know this about you, I know this about you. And I was sitting on that this week, um, obviously, because I was preparing a sermon around it, <laughs> but, but specifically that, that those two words, Revelation 2.19, those first two words, I know, I know. And for some of you this morning, this is the message. He knows. Like he sees and he knows. And, and I was reading this. I was so stirred by Jesus just telling this church, I know, I see. Like this stuff really matters to me. And, and, and as I was processing, like what does that even mean? What does it mean that God knows? The God that's never distracted and that never has a, a mis-aim in his focus he knows. I, I think of myself, and it's like I so easily learn things that I never set out to know. You know, I, I know so many things that number one, it doesn't it doesn't have any value to it really. Number two, I never really tried to learn. Like this week, I learned that a praying mantis lays an egg sac, and it takes eight weeks for the eggs to hatch. It's like I know this, but it doesn't add, it doesn't do anything for me. It doesn't add any value to my life. You know, I learned this week just by, by a random scrolling of news. I, you know, I learned how much of his Tesla stock that Elon Musk sold. You know, and I learned yesterday that a sloth spends 16 hours a day sleeping and has four stomachs. It's like, okay, I know this stuff. That last one was because I went to the zoo, not because I was researching sloths. You know, and so I think how many of us know stuff that it's just kind of this accidental knowing? You know, there wasn't an intentionality to it, and it doesn't really give us any value. You know, we, we, this happens to me so often. I'll, I'll go on my computer to do one specific thing, and five minutes later, I'm like, I forgot what I got on here to do. You know, and I've, I've read this article, and I've seen this, and I've looked at this, and it's like, 
we, I'm so easily, I don't want to speak for you, but I'm so easily distracted in what I'm learning and what I'm knowing. Not so with God. He doesn't learn anything by accident. He doesn't get distracted in learning things and knowing things that have no value. But the very fact that he says, I know, means that it was an intentional looking and that it has eternal value and weight to him. He doesn't know anything that doesn't matter to him. He doesn't know anything that doesn't serve eternal purpose to his heart and his kingdom. And so he says to them, I know. What I know about you has value and it, it means so much to me. And he goes through four things. He says, I know the love you have for me. I know the love that you have for one another. I see your love. I see it and I say that it's real. I say that it's authentic. I say that it moves me. That no matter what it feels like to you, I'm looking at it and it matters to me. I'm stirred by it. He says, I know your faith. I know that you've chosen to believe. I know the pressure you've walked through. I mean, in that day, for a people in the Roman Empire, in the midst of a pagan culture to have faith, it's, it means that they had to make an intentional decision, that they had to order their lives around what they believed in a way that was costly. He says, I know that. I know that it's not a cheap faith that you've chosen. I know that it's not a plastic faith that has no internal life or value to you. I know that it's real and authentic. He says, I know your deeds or your service. I know that you're giving yourselves, that you're loving one another, that you're sacrificing, that you're laying yourselves down, that you're looking for ways to serve those in need, to give of your food and your water and all of these resources I've given to you. I see your service and your deeds. And he says, I know your perseverance. I know that you've had opportunities to give up. I know that you've had opportunities to back down. I know that you've had opportunities to throw in the towel when the pressure hit and you've chosen to hold fast and stay the course. I know that when things didn't go your way, you could have become bitter and offended, but you haven't. You've kept your love burning for me and it moves me deeply. And so like I said, some of us this morning, the message is just God knows. He knows those hidden choices when it would have been so easy to go the other way, to say, God, I'm, I don't see it. I don't know how this is gonna work out. I don't understand. This doesn't make sense, but I'm gonna choose you again today. He sees that and he knows. He remembers these things for us, for the Thyatirans, and it moves his heart. And so these two pieces, the revelation of Jesus that we talked about, the affirmation that he gives, like that sets the tone for the rest of the church, the rest of this letter. We can't make sense of it out of seeing who he is and his heart for these people and for us. And so because of that, he comes to them in verse 20. He says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And so just like with the church of Ephesus, he says, I have this against you. You left your first love. Just like he said to Pergamum, you have this dissonance within you. By the way, I listened to the recording later. I was one of those, you know, headphones on. Rachel and the band come up. And I'm like, oh. You know, he says, I've got this against you. You've got this dissonance. And then he says, he says it in the same way to Thyatira. He says, you have allowed toleration to come into your midst. Now, for them, it was specifically toleration of this prophetess, Jezebel. I'm guessing that she probably wasn't named that by her parents. If so, that would have been cruel um, and a very bad joke. But, you know, we'll talk in a minute about some of the similarities with the Jezebel of old. But there's this woman prophetess in the church who at some point probably did have some accurate prophetic words or else nobody would listen to her. And she comes in the midst of this. Remember that the situation being if you were a tradesman, but you refused to go to these pagan feasts, you could lose your job. Your family could get on the streets. You know, you would just lose everything. And she comes in the midst of that and she says, guys, it's okay. Like the grace of God is sufficient for us to put one foot in over here to go to this feast. It's not going to matter that much. I think even tying in with some of the, the teachings of Gnosticism to say that, you know, what you do physically doesn't actually affect you spiritually. And so in the midst of this church, 
whose love, faith, service, and perseverance was growing, Jesus says there is something that's threatening to derail, to shipwreck this whole thing. And it's toleration of this voice that's trying to call you away from me into idolatry and immorality. And, and the potential of that little piece to stunt the whole thing. And I, I'm a runner. I like to run. And in 2010, I was training for a marathon. This was when Carla was pregnant with our oldest, Mariah. And uh, I was following this schedule. I had been training for about three months and was getting pretty, up to pretty good distances. You know, I was, I was running 15s, 18-mile runs. And, and one day I noticed, man, my, my foot's hurting me a little bit. Um, you know, just a little bit sore after the run. But I had to keep on this, co- this training schedule so I could finish the marathon. So I, you know, I just kept pushing through. I kept running. And, um, and I did this 20-mile run, which, has anybody in here run a marathon? Nobody. So I could say whatever I want about running 20 miles. And, um, but it's, you know, it's kind of that thing where it's like, if you can run 20 miles, you can probably drag yourself the last six, you know? You hit the 20-mile run, and it's like, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much ready to go. But I did this 20-mile run, and the next day I couldn't walk. And the day after that I couldn't walk. And I'm thinking, you know, it's just sore. You know, I, I got to just give it a little bit of time. And so I waited a little bit a week, and then I went out and did an eight-mile run, and, and man, that thing was brutal. So I went and got it checked out and found out I had a stress fracture in my foot. I ended up in a boot for eight weeks. No marathon for me. I've tried to climb that hill again. just haven't been able to do it. But the, but the, the idea being that I tolerated something that was not right. I, I tried to just go along with it, pretend it didn't matter, and it ended up wiping out that, that race for me. In um, Galatians 5, Paul says, you were running well, who hindered you? You were running well, what came in and brought that stress fracture? What came in and, and, and uh, derailed where you're heading? He goes on, he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so this idea that he brings to the church of Thyatira, toleration, the thing about toleration is that it's sneaky. You know, it comes in, it tells you it'll stay nice and neat in the corner. It's not a big deal. It's not gonna, it's not gonna create noise. It's not gonna do any damage. It's kind of like buying a puppy. You go, to the, you go to the pet store and you look at these, you know, well-groomed little dogs and they're, they're kind of behind glass. They're night, they're contained, they're neat. They're, you know, it just looks like this is gonna be a dream. You know, and so you buy the dog, or maybe you look online and you see these perfectly photoshopped pictures of a beautiful uh, dog. So you, so you buy the dog, you bring it home, and within two months or within two hours, you realize this was the worst choice I ever made. Not only does it create a mess in your whole house, but as we learned, we, we bought a puppy in China, it will jump on the counter and eat your apple pie. There's a fun story there. But, but toleration, it's this thing where you know, we, we assume we can keep it contained. It's just a side thing. It's not going to actually affect our lives. And what Jesus is saying here is that this has such potential to derail the whole thing. But it comes in sneaky because toleration, it's different than being in full-blown sin. It's different than being the one that's leading the charge into darkness and immorality. Toleration is, is just allowing things that we disagree with it's allowing things we know that are wrong to even have an entertainment or a place in our heart and in our mind, in our thoughts. Toleration is when we look the other way. We allow something that's unfit to remain. We listen to a voice that would be pushing a narrative contrary to God's heart and his word. And it's when we say, I'm not the one doing it, so it doesn't affect me. Like That's such a big part of toleration. Say, well, it's... I'm not doing it or, or I, you know, I might be doing the motions, but my heart's not there. And we justify the effect that passive sin will have on our lives. And we justify the effect it will have on our families. And we justify the effect it will have on our communities. So toleration. You know, there, there's, it's not just this, well, I'm, I'm 
just going to go jump into something. I'm just going to randomly find my way into tolerating some type of sin. Um, I think there's five reasons why we're tempted to tolerate something in our lives. I think for some people, it's the opportunity for position. You know, the opportunity to climb that next rung on the corporate ladder, the opportunity to have a little bit more influence in a certain context. And, and so we begin to justify this, this lie that says, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tolerate this because it'll let me get to this place. That's toleration for some people. For others, it's a cultural pressure or a sway to fit in. I, I think of Nazi Germany and how many people out of a desire not to stand out, just went along with this slow journey, this slow toleration that ended up in full-scale genocide against the Jewish people. For some people, it's self-preservation, where we assume I have to tolerate this or else I'm gonna suffer loss. I have to tolerate this and, and not go the other direction or else persecution is gonna come my way. For some, it's the pursuit of comfort. And for others, it's, it really is a distorted view of what God is after. It's this, it's this message of grace that says, God is after your happiness. He doesn't care about you know, the law anymore. You're under grace. You can do whatever you want. And so we begin to tolerate. And I think all of these levels of toleration really are in some way, they're connected to fear. When we open the door to fear, specifically the fear of man and the fear of lack, that will result, if we don't deal with that place of fear, that will result in us tolerating things to preserve ourselves, to guard ourselves. And so in Thyatira, their toleration was of, of Jezebel. Now this Jezebel was, again, she was saying it's okay to take part in immorality, it's okay to take part in idolatry. She was distorting the grace of God by saying you can go to the pagan feasts at the temple, but these pagan feasts were really these, these crazy demonic religious orgies that were happening. Um, and she was saying, do it, because if you do, you'll get the benefits of society. You'll have a job, you'll have position, you'll have status. So I wanna look just for a minute at these two things she was encouraging. Because my guess is, my hope and my trust, is that none of us last night were bowing down before this wooden or this bronze or this, this rock statue of an idol. You know, and, and so for us, we read this, it's like, no, I wasn't at the temple last night bowing down before an idol and eating food sacrificed to a demon. But what, what is idolatry for us? If that was you, come and talk to me afterwards. We'll, we'll do some prayer ministry and deliverance. Um, and I, and I, really, I, I really like how Mike Bickle defines this. He says, idolatry is pursuing power outside of God's will. Pursuing power outside of God's will. It's when we look to something or someone else to meet a need or to provide something for us. Again, that fear of lack that we're not sure how it's gonna come any other way. And so even for the people here, you know, whether they were actually worshiping the idols, I think some of them were, it was really about this place of finding provision, finding power, finding resource, gaining advantage outside of the will and the heart of God. I think for some of us, it looks like making financial choices that go against God's heart for the sake of our own security and comfort. For some people, it looks like buying into a cultural narrative that tolerates issues that are wrong to preserve freedom, to pre preserve a status and a benefit that we've enjoyed in our nation. And, and on that one, I wanna say that the pressure is gonna increase. The pressure to tolerate the, the, the progressive agenda, the social cultural narrative that's rooted in darkness and lies of the enemy, the pressure to tolerate that's gonna increase. It's gonna become harder and harder where we're gonna to have to be more intentional in our awareness and in our fight against toleration. It also looks like finding our, our source outside of God in the area of leaning on social media, leaning on relationships. Some people even leaning on food in moments of pain, in moments of loneliness, in moments of uncertainty and boredom. And I think the real question when we think about what does idolatry look like to me, it's where do I go when I'm tired? Where do I go when I'm bored? Where do I go when things around me begin to shake? 
Where do I go when I feel pressure and I'm not sure what's going on? What's my default? And, and the answer to that will reveal, is there anything we're allowing to creep in that could set us off course from where the Lord wants us to be and what he wants for us? So he confronts this issue of idolatry. And then he says, immorality. And so again, Mike says, idolatry pursuing power outside of God's will. Immorality is pursuing pleasure outside of God's will. And, and most often scripturally, immorality is in the context of sexual immorality outside of the marriage covenant of one man and one woman. I mean, this one is so blatant, screaming at us from the left and the right in our culture today. This idea of perversion, this idea of, um, of accepting what is clearly against God's word, whether it's the LGBTQ agenda, whether it's a message that says it's okay to, to go a little bit further in relationships. It's okay to look at this. It's okay to, to set your eyes on this. Like the, the sexual immorality of our culture, the perversion of our culture is being paraded before us on every angle, everywhere we look, on TV, on commercials. It's like I can't even put YouTube, a YouTube video on for my kids because I don't know what that ad that's gonna pop up is gonna look like. You know, even, even driving down the street, there's billboards that are just screaming, look at me, give yourself, give me a little space in your thoughts, give me a little place in your emotions, let me touch your desires a little bit, drink a little bit of me. We live in a generation that's bombarded with this sexual immorality and this pressure to compromise and to justify allowing just a little bit in, allowing just a, a little bit leaning away from the word of God, giving space to our eyes, giving space to our thoughts and what touches our emotions and our thought life. And these, these places of idolatry and these places of immorality, at the end of the day, they're devotion killers. Their purpose and their goal, the enemy's purpose behind them is to come where we've cultivated love, where we've cultivated faith, where we've given ourselves to service and perseverance and to try and rob that from us, to try and pull us from that place of intimacy with Jesus but the thing of them is, is that they don't come with these big neon signs that say, this is what I'm doing. I'm trying to take you down. I'm trying to kill, kill, steal, and destroy. It's just these subtle little choices, especially when we're not on our guard, when we're tired, when we're bored, when we're hungry, when we're lonely. They come trying to justify their presence and touch on any area of insecurity or fear in our hearts to take root and to take hold. And so he says, you are tolerating this voice. You're tolerating idolatry and immorality. There, there's a voice today in our country, an increasingly loud voice of progress, you know, being culturally woke. I didn't even know what that word meant until a few months ago. But you know, there, there's this voice that says, if you want to fit in, if you want to continue to enjoy what you've enjoyed as a proud and free American, then you've got to go this way. Even if you're not doing it, even if you're not fully immersed in it, you've got to tolerate it. And if you don't, we're going to cancel you. If you don't tolerate what our narrative is and what we say is true and what we say is acceptable, then you're going to feel our wrath. And while it might be small things today, it's going to increase. And so many people through toleration have bought into that voice of seduction. And, and as I was just thinking on this, I was stirred by the, the warning of Psalm 1 or the exhortation of Psalm 1. Blessed are those who do not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the path of sinners, sit in the seat of scoffers. Because what you walk in today, what you consider, what you tolerate today, you will be living in tomorrow. What you give space for today, the voices that you listen to, the media that you feed on, the, the radio stations, the news stations that you watch, what you listen to today, you will walk in tomorrow and live in tomorrow. So he says, you're tolerating this woman Jezebel. Now Jezebel, again, it was this, old, this New Testament person that was real, but also this allusion to the Jezebel of the Old Testament. And just very briefly, Jezebel in the Old Testament married King Ahab the king of Israel, and Jezebel was a Sidonian princess. The Sidonians were a people that worshiped Baal, and they worshiped at the Ashtaroth. 
And so Jezebel comes in. Ahab was already a mess. He wasn't a good dude anyway to begin with. But she just, she just adds fuel to that fire. And so she says, we're going we're gonna to raise up all of these prophets of Baal. They're going to begin giving a prophetic message. They're going to begin telling a narrative to the people of Israel. And slowly and surely, consequently, all of Israel is led astray. I mean, there's a remnant left, but most of Israel began worshiping Baal and the Ashtaroth. And so she had these prophets that were kind of the, the, uh, the messengers, the, the ones promulgating this cultural religious narrative of immorality, of sexual looseness that pulled people further astray. And then on top of that, she was killing the true prophets. And, and so I share that to say that this is what that spirit of toleration will do. It will not only empower a contrary voice, but it will kill the prophetic spirit on God's people. I want to say this clearly. If we allow toleration, a power or pleasure outside of God, a provision of, of all of these areas outside of God, it will destroy our ability to be a prophetic voice and to be a witness for God in this hour and in this generation. I want to briefly share um, a dream. Um, some of you remember last spring, Lou Engel called a, a 40-day Jesus fast. And on one of the first days of the fast, a, a good friend of mine that you know, we were tracking together through the fast, meeting almost daily to encourage each other, one of those first days he has a dream. And in this dream, he's in this hotel. And this woman comes, he's there with his wife, this woman comes and tries to seduce him. And, and he's resisting, and he's resisting. And as he's resisting, all of a sudden, she turns into, he, he described it as that creature, that character in Maleficent. Maleficent, is that right? I haven't seen the movie. But this Disney movie where she's got those big horns, and he realized, like, this is Jezebel, that principality Jezebel before me trying to seduce me. So he takes off running, and she's chasing him, and he finds himself in this large room full of people. He described it as, um, it was like the uh, Union Station, kind of that big open space. And he realizes, I have to get these people. I have to wake them up before her spell touches them. And right when he's about to like rescue each person, she'll come and touch them, and, and they get this trance affixed over them. So then he's running, and he finds himself in this arcade. And he knows, just by the Spirit of the Lord, that my only way to defeat her, she's coming, she's coming for me, my only way to defeat her is to unplug all of the games. And so he's frantically going and ripping cords out of the wall and unplugging these games in this arcade. And when he unplugs the very last one, she shows up, but he knew he had power over this spirit. And, and it's a fairly straightforward dream just in that and we, we have to stop the games. We have to stop the things where our guard is down and we think it's just fun and games. But then at the end of the fast, I have a dream. And in the dream, I'm, I'm at Union Station as well. And I'm with my daughters. And they're doing this dance performance. And there's this, this single mother who's there. And, you know, I'm watching my girls dance. And she's trying to sway them. She's trying to get them to, to loosen up, to be a little bit more provocative. You know, they've got this dress on. I'm trying to keep them covered. She's like, stop being so religious. Stop being so uptight. Just let them enjoy. Let them have a little bit of fun. And I, I come up to her in the dream, and I say to her, you have the spirit of Jezebel, and I will not tolerate it. If you do not accept me as their father, then we're going to leave. And we end up leaving. And, and, and just those two dreams were so clear the Lord's warning that this is not a joking matter. It's, it's not a game matter of allowing toleration, both in our lives, in our homes, among our children, that the enemy is actually raging, trying to take out a generation, trying to invite them into a looseness that will rob them of the inheritance that God has for them. And, and when I look at this letter, that's what I see so strongly. Jesus is like, I am jealous to give you an inheritance. I am jealous but there's a way that you have to pursue it. There's a way that you have to walk after it. And so he, he gives them this charge. And then I'm just going to read this and, and wrap up here in a minute. Um, if, if Zion, is Zion here? Zion, if you could just come up and play a little bit. He says in verse 21, I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Immorality. 
I gave her time to repent. Again, we see his mercy. He's like, my heart and my desire was that she would repent. I was patient. I mean, think about this. He was patient and merciful with Jezebel. Like, how great is his love? How great is his mercy? He's merciful with us when we, when we are pursuing him. We try to follow him. We slip. We fall down, but we get back up. He said, I'm merciful. I'm patient with you. But as we heard last week, my mercy is given to those who will repent. My mercy is given to those who will turn from those ways of toleration, those ways of compromise, and who will realign themselves with my standards, who will realign themselves with my jealous eyes of burning love and say, God, I'm yours. God, I look to those eyes of fire today. He says, I'm a God of mercy. I gave my very life to release this mercy. It's not a cheap mercy. It means everything to me, and I'm extending it to you. I was extending it to her. He doesn't boast about what he's about to do. He says, I'm about to do something, but you've got to know that I was merciful first. You've got to know that even in the judgment, I'm merciful. Even in the judgment, I'm long-suffering, and I'm patient. But he says, for those who refuse, those who will not follow my leadership and repent, that there will be a consequence, there will be a purging, because I cannot allow that to remain. If he allows Jezebel to remain, if he allows her followers to remain, it will infiltrate. Remember Galatians 5, 9, that leaven will leaven the whole lump. So he says, for the sake of mercy, for the sake of love, I will remove that which refuses to turn and which will hinder you. He says in verse 22, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds, I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the hearts and the minds, and I give each one according to your deeds. I am he who searches. I'm the one with eyes of fire that looks deeply, not primarily to judge or to crush, primarily to purify and refine because I want to give you so much more. And then he says, we're going to finish with this. Verse 24, I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He says, to those of you who will hear this message, those of you who I know your love, know your faith, it moves my heart, hold fast. As I, as I was sitting on that phrase, hold fast, I was thinking about this summer, we took our kids to a water park. And I think every water park, in order to be a water park, they have to have the wave, right? They have to have that tidal wave. You know, and, and, and it's this thing where you're standing in the water and you can kind of choose how deep you want to go. I usually go, you know, ankle deep. And you're standing there, and pretty soon the wave comes. And at first, you know, it's just a little bit gentle, but then you feel the full force of it. And it's like if you're not braced, it's going to knock you out. And, and I see that when I hear this phrase, hold fast what you have. You're standing. You're firm. You, you haven't fallen. You haven't followed the voice of Jezebel, but you're going to have to hold fast. In Greek, that phrase hold fast means to rule over and to carefully and faithfully keep, to keep guard of what you have, to watch with great diligence. And, and I want to just end on this, that there's an invitation Jesus has for us to hold fast this place, this holy place on the inside of our hearts, this holy place in our homes, where when his eyes of fire come, it's pure delight, it's pure love, it's pure passion that we would be ones who hold fast by daily looking at him. Like it really does change everything when we take moments throughout our day to look at him, to whisper short phrases, to say, you are the man with eyes like a flame of fire. You are the one who has perfect love, jealous love. Let those eyes of fire touch my heart. Let those eyes of fire create in me a holy environment for you to dwell in. 
let's even just stand together this morning. We hold fast by looking into those eyes. We hold fast. We allow those eyes of fire to awaken in us a jealous guarding of our hearts, a jealous guarding of our homes, a jealous guarding of our thoughts, a jealous guarding of our emotions. By asking his eyes of fire to cleanse, to purify, to sanctify us. We look into those eyes of fire, confessing where we have looked at other things, where we have given our affections, where we've looked elsewhere for pleasure outside of him, where we've looked for comfort and safety and security outside of him. Even now, Jesus, we invite those eyes of fire. We ask that your love for holiness would be our love for holiness. That your hatred for immorality and perversion would be our hatred for immorality and perversion. We ask, God, that you would impart us the grace that David had. When he said, I make a covenant with my eyes to set no unclean thing before my eyes. Friends, remember, this is not just about full-blown sin, but it's about toleration of things that go against who God is, things that go against his heart. Lord, let those eyes of fire search us right now. We look into those eyes, and then we ask those eyes to examine us. Lord, when we are lonely, bored, in pain, and confused, where do we go and what do we lean on? Where do we compromise our devotion to try and appease something internally that only you will touch and satisfy? Where do our relationships, our conversations, and our schedules compromise wholehearted devotion to you? And where are we afraid, fearful of lack, fearful of what could happen and what could go wrong, fearful of people around us. Search us, O oh God, and know us. Let those eyes of fire purify us. One other way that we hold fast is that we turn. We turn from everything that would steal affection for him. We shut every door to darkness in our lives, on our televisions, on our computers, in our homes, in our conversations. And we open up the door for his truth and his word to come in. Lord, you say in Psalm 1, blessed are those who do not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditate on your law day and night. They will be like trees planted by streams of water who yield their fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. That this is the blessing that you have, Lord. And so we hold fast by learning to delight in his word, by committing our hearts and our minds to his word. I want to even issue a practical challenge that over the next 50 days, the rest of 2021, that you would give 30 minutes a day to delighting in his word, 30 minutes a day to reading it and letting it wash you, letting it call you higher, letting it lead you in to the revelation of his heart. And I tell you that if you will do that for 30 minutes a day for these next weeks, that you will look back at the end of the year and find that your heart is burning for his word. You'll find an, an additional layer of guarding and strength against toleration and immorality. God, I ask that we would be a people that holds fast by looking into those eyes, by inviting the examining eyes of the Lord on our lives, and by rooting ourselves in your word. 
Lord, I pray you touch us this morning. I ask for that, that fire of your spirit, that cleansing of your spirit, God, that grace to stand against the pressure, against the sway, against the voices, whether they're national voices or the voices of a friend or a family member. Give us grace to hold fast to love for you, love for one another, faith in who you are and in your leadership. Give us vision, Lord. He finishes this letter. He who overcomes, he who keeps my deeds to the end, he who holds fast, to him I will give authority over the nations and the morning star. He says, if you can rule your hearts well, if you rule your homes well, if you rule those hidden places that, you know, they're not the national global stages, if you can do that well in purity and humility and love, then you will rule with me in the age to come as I build my kingdom on the earth. And I will give you the morning star. I will give you myself. I will give you the capacity and ability to enjoy me, to encounter me, to be satisfied and delight in me alone. So we say, Jesus, help us to walk this out. Have your inheritance in us as we find our inheritance in you. In Jesus' name. kind of pack up in here and get things put back in order. But thanks for joining.